morning, everyone. I know it's a rainy day, it's a rainy season, but I hope you are safe. Welcome to Strictly Legal on WESN Content Capital. I am your host, Rondel Dono, attorney at law. Once again, I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be alive. I'm happy to bring the law and you. Um, hope you are doing well and you can stream us on WESNCC.com as well as our traditional media and podcast at Strictly Legal with Rondel Dono. Uh, today, we are going to speak about strike action, industrial relations. I mean, we have heard so much um, information in the news with respect to, I mean, most recently, Tutor. Uh, being, uh, well, basically the Ministry of Education being granted um, an injunction against Tutor for such strike action. What is industrial relations? Um, whether those strike actions is justifiable and whether it is legal. Of course, what are the parameters and the law surrounding these actions? Of course, you would want to know um, whether, it is, whether it is safe um, uh, and, and what is the underlying interest with respect to students, teachers, as well as essential, non-essential services, etc. There's a lot. And today I do have in studio uh, Vivek Lakhan-Joseph, Lack um, who is a trial advocate with 12 years experience and he's a founder and principal attorney of Vivek uh, Lakhan-Joseph and Associates, a boutique full service law firm in Woodbrook, Port of Spain. In addition to broad um, high court litigation portfolios, he is an IR specialist with a heavy industrial court practice. He's currently engaged as counsel for a variety of corporate entities for the provision of legal services and advice and, um, with respect to both contentious and non-contentious matters. And he also prides himself on advancing proactive and practical solutions, as well as providing personalized attention to his client tailored to their specific needs. You may have seen him a lot on... Um, on television or maybe his um his learning on on um on different topics related relating to industrial relations so i'm very happy to have him in studio uh good morning vivek how are you hi good morning i hope i pronounced the name properly yeah. yes <laughs> yes vivek and thank you very much for having me on the program and for such a generous introduction as well thank you so much and i know it, it's it's so much to discuss uh so let's yeah. get right into it um now let's start with this um this current issue, Ministry of Labor versus Tutor. I mean, I know in the news um, just last week, um, the um, uh, Ministry of Labor would have been uh, granted an injunction in the, in the dead of the night, as they call it, on Sunday, Sunday evening against um, Tutor for an industrial or when it is a day of sickness that they would have, or rest on reflection, I believe. Yes. Um, and you can tell us more um, that they um, was going to, to, to engage in on the Monday. Um, so give us a little overview of what is that case about. Okay. Um, firstly, um, you're absolutely right. In the dead of the night, we have the Minister of Labour who goes to court. He gets an injunction directly from the industrial court. And it's against Tutor, who would be the recognised majority union representing teachers in Trinidad and Tobago. Um, there are levels of importance that attracted this matter, especially because it comes against a backdrop of very aggressive negotiations between Tutor and the government. Now, there are so many different layers to this topic and, and the case is really not the simplest of ones, but key features would include industrial action being taken by a class such as teachers in Trinidad and Tobago and whether or not that industrial action is even permitted in the first place. Yeah. Um, outside of that, we have other considerations as to whether or not the injunction ought to have been granted. What is the test that applies in law? And perhaps most importantly, where do we move forward after it is that we have this court action? So that is really just the initial feature of, of the case. But stemming from that, perhaps we can go into that 
that class of teachers and where do they fall in Trinidad? In, indeed, and, and that would have been my, my, my follow-up question as to, okay, yes, we understand that there are a lot of layers, um, but are teachers an essential, teach, is, are the, is the teaching commission an essential service? Let's put it that way. Right, so, so um, people use this quite informally and, and there's nothing wrong with that too. As a service, they're certainly essential but we are governed by the Industrial Relations Act and there's a, a listing, a category of list um, as to which entities actually fall under that category of essential services. Now, while the teaching service isn't specifically named there, the act does make provision for them elsewhere and that provision expressly prohibits the teaching service from engaging in industrial action, including strikes. So, therefore, that leads to the other question, okay, um, it's, so are you saying that it's illegal for teachers to strike? So, especially when you have a matter that is uh, before the court right now, it is sub judice, and I, normally I wouldn't go too much into detail or, or attempt to make any pronouncement on it, but in my view, the law is very clear. We have an Industrial Relations Act. Certain classes are prohibited from taking industrial action, including strike, go slow, and the teachers do fall into a category which is prohibited from taking industrial action. So at face value, certainly, once it is deemed to be that the action they have taken is, is industrial action, um, I would say that is prohibited under our law. And when we say industrial action, give us a, 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 a sort of a definition of what really is industrial action we, uh, for the purpose of this We, we do have a heavier legal definition in the act um, to maybe break it down a little bit simpler um, and this is, of course, in the context of unions, employers, employees. Um, the hallmark features would really include actions by a party which compels or attempts to compel another party to uh, either agree to terms of employment or to comply with their demands. And when we look at this with the backdrop of the aggressive negotiations with tutor and the government, uh, we really see that it can certainly be interpreted that if it is that there's a rest and reflection period, that this may be deemed to be one such action where it is that they're trying to compel the other side, in this case, the government, to take certain action. Because look, the consequence may be so dire if we, the government, do not respond. And I think that may have been the thought process behind the movement. But, but is it that rest and reflection is a definition of strike action? Is that, is that one of the, the, um, the examples of what a strike action is? So, so I think as the, the words for strike action, um, the key feature of striking would really be the cessation of work. And uh, what I have seen from the industrial court so far, and this is subject to any judgment, is that they've classified it under the wider bracket of industrial action. And industrial action has that broader definition where um, depending on the nature of what has actually transpired, it may be deemed to be industrial action, which is the broader category. I would say that striking is a subcategory that is a part of the industrial action. And I would say that no matter how tutor may try to slice it or dice it, as it stands on its face, if it is a call for teachers to essentially not come out to work and it's for a purpose and it's with the backdrop of these negotiations, it is likely to be deemed to be some form of industrial action. And which that, is the wider category. And, and really and truly, it's as a result. So, so what, what the elephant in the room there is, 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 is wage negotiation. Yes. Yeah? That, that's, that's exactly it. Mm -hmm. And this brings up, and I'm, I'm so happy that you mentioned that because it's, a, it's such an important issue to treat with. We have teachers, I mean, um, a, a respected profession. What they do for society is invaluable. 
Uh, we're talking about children, our future, and they're saying, well, look, we need to be fairly compensated. Um, we need a wage increase commensurate with inflation, the increased cost of living. But at the same time, we have a government who perhaps is also reasonably saying, well, there must be limits that we can attract to any such increase. So where do we really strike that balance? And, and what is the real recourse that teachers may have if it is that we really have a law legislation which actually expressly prohibits that type of action? And I, I think that's, that's, that's one of the reasons why the topic is such a heavily debated one as well. And, and, and when we're looking at the balance in interest, we're looking at the interest of the child, the right to education, yes. because that's a, that's a constitutional right. Um, but it's also the right of the teacher um, to, uh, to, be, to be compensated properly for their, their, well, their, their time, their talents, and obviously giving, um, providing a song education to, to the students. Absolutely, that's spot on. The only thing I would want to add is the genesis of this case that was brought by the Ministry of Labor is that the minister has a discretion where, depending on the nature of any action that is taken, if it is that the minister deems there to be any threat or harm to what the minister deems to be the national interest, then the minister is allowed to approach the court and ask for an injunction to prevent either the threatened or the actual action itself. So that even uh, a more global question arises, well, what is really the national interest? And is the minister correct in saying the national interest requires that the court stop tutor from continuing in this action? So um, once again, um, perfect that you've raised the individual rights and the right of the child to education, the right of the teacher, perhaps a fair compensation and fair value for the work which is undertaken. But just as important as well, the national interest point, because we're looking at it, I think, more, in this case at least, from a macro rather than a, a micro level. And, and we understand or we understood that this um, injunction was granted ex parte, and of course, meaning ex parte, meaning without the other side being present um, to either defend themselves or, or, or actually um, provide some sort of response. Now, now, can you explain why is it that the, the courts, I mean, any, in any um, proceedings, um, would grant an order ex parte without another party being present in the interim? Right. So an ex parte application is, is made in certain circumstances, usually where the law expressly provides for it. Um, the general trend now in our court system and in the common law would be that both parties be given that right to be heard at the same time. So not ex parte. It will really be only in the most limited of circumstances. Strangely enough, the provisions of this act, um, this Industrial Relations Act, caters for the minister to make this application on an ex parte basis. Um, the thinking behind it from the learning, which I've read so far, suggests that the matters may be so urgent or so important, given the macro level, this national interest point, that there may not even be time to necessarily serve or to wait to afford the other side, in this case the union, an opportunity to be heard immediately, but rather it gives a direct line from the minister to the court to seek that injunction. Now, that is not to say that fairness does not dictate that the union also doesn't have an opportunity to respond but certainly the design of this law is that the minister brings this application ex parte. So that is actually what is required in these circumstances. Um, I wouldn't say that there was anything underhanded that they have gone on an ex parte basis, but certainly that that is what, what the law would have made provision for. And of course you indicated that the law would also make provision for um, the union to respond. 
Yes. And um, and of course, when the union responds, um, it does not necessarily mean that the um, an injunction will be uh, in perpetuity. It can be lifted. Absolutely. Now, I have no indication as to what stance the union would take. The industrial court tends to take a, a very practical look at matters. It is not um, unusual for the parties to speak if it is that the union wishes to adopt a certain position, um, depending on what we've already described the legislation as providing for, then the parties can discuss and find a way forward. Certainly this nature of litigation, I don't think really assists either party. Once it is that everybody bats in their respective creases and doesn't step out of the lines of the law, then there's no reason why the negotiations can't continue in harmony. But if it is that the Minister of Labour, I suppose, is of the, is of the view that extra protection would be needed and uh, he, he maybe doesn't, um, the minister maybe would not have the level of trust that further industrial action um, may not be taken, then he may insist on having the injunction preserved. And, and one would assume that this, um, uh, this particular interim injunction protects the, well, protects the, the ministry um, from further strike action that Tutor may um, want to undertake. Exactly. And, and to piggyback off of your point, it wouldn't just be the protection of the ministry alone and the general industry, it's to the wider society. Because even if teachers are not necessarily classified specifically as essential services under our law, um, there's provision made for them not to take industrial action for a reason. And I, I think informally the topic is how vital the teaching service is to, to the wider community. And that, of course, is not to relegate the teaching service because we all have the utmost respect um, for, for the entire category of teaching. But when you look at essential services generally and the wider category, those Section 69 entities where the law provides for, they are fundamental. Everything goes back to fundamental rights of society. And that's why when we look at essential services, you see water, you see electricity, you see um, certain aspects within the public sector generally. Um, health is, of course, extremely important. And uh, I have done quite a bit of research um, since the action as well to solidify what, what the court's views are. And when it is that the court makes a pronouncement on what is in the national interest, you see very interesting language which is used. The court sometimes uses language as this may have a crippling effect on society, a paralyzing effect on the operations of society in the medical field so that so that is a legal test that they use it, well as to whether or not there's an infringement on that national interest and um, that goes to show you how high that bar really is that the minister would have had to, to cross that threshold but of course if the law says you're not allowed to take industrial action and uh, it's it has been shown to be that you have perhaps the industrial court may have had very little discretion in, in exercising their rights to grant that injunction. Now, let's say Tutor or any other union decides to breach that court order and proceed with industrial action. Um, what are the consequences? Does that obviously now become a criminal offence? Yes, you're, you're absolutely right. They're industrial relations offences and they're, they're criminal offences. And what our legislation does is it, it breaks down into very specific detail. Depending on who you are and what you have done, um, a variety of offenses that go from fines to terms of imprisonment. So um, not, not to make light of it, but it's, it's extremely serious business that we're dealing with. And the language of our law also captures wider categories as well. So even if it is that you are not directly the president of a union or a member of a union, 
or a teacher or an employer directly, even if it is that you are to encourage that industrial action, for example, for essential services, that could be an offense as well. But then who is, who is held responsible? Is it that um, the entire union, the president, the teachers, because obviously it now means that this is, becomes mass litigation? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and that's practical. Right, and that is, that's, that's perfect. So that's the practical side of things now. Would it be practical to have these consequences go against a wide number of, of teachers? And the law also provides that sometimes the sanctions would not be automatic. Um, the law provides that if it is that a union or workers even potentially take industrial action which is not um, legal or in accordance with the act, that the consequence could potentially even be that the employer treats that breach of the employee as to the root of the contract, fundamental to even terminate. Now, that is not, that is not really the case for essential services because we can't have members of our essential services have all their contracts terminated. But it just goes to show how strict industrial action is. And you, you had mentioned as well, well, who is really responsible? We have employees who may be members of the union and we have the union, we have employers, we have representatives. It is serious enough that when we speak of industrial action, it's not just any random union, you have a recognized majority union. In this case, for example, it would be tutor. Now, if it is that tutor, or rather, let me not use any names, if a recognized majority union rather were to effect such a breach, it is open for them to be declassified as that recognized majority union. So the theoretical consequences are quite high, which is, which is why the letter of the law is so important and making sure that entities always follow the design and the provisions as to what the law caters for. So therefore, the sanctions imposed does not necessarily have to be custodian or it can be fines or it can be, as you said, consequences yes. such as declassification of the union and, yes. and, and obviously stifling their authority to act on behalf of the majority. Exactly. And those would be subject usually to further applications. I wouldn't say it's any automatic sanction. I think historically, um, from what I have observed in practice, it's not to say that the consequences have automatically followed um, or anything like that. It's usually, like I said, subject to further procedure. And uh, it may not be in the best interest usually to have something so nuclear like declassification done or so. Right? I, I think a court may be loath to exercise some of those options, not to speak for any court, of course. But the goal would be that the parties can reach a, an amicable resolution without the need for this, this kind of litigation. Indeed. Um, so, so let's, I mean, we've, we've, been, we've been speaking about essential services. Who are, so, who are essential services? So let's, let's go into, I mean, we've dealt with the tutor. We've understand that the, teacher, yes. te uh, te the teachers, are, while it's not classified as essential, it's, it, it's sort of understood to be an important Absolutely. essential service. Yes. Um, so let's deal with, with what are other types of essential services? Um, in yes, absolutely. I have, I have my handy list that <laughs> has everything right here for you. But it, it would be the same things that um, people have already expected. But we, we, I don't want to bore with law. Indeed, indeed. But we have a second yeah. schedule of the Industrial Relations Act. There's a, a full listing, but it goes from electricity, water and sewage, telephone, communications, fire, health, sanitation, Civil aviation, um, across the board, those would be the main categories. Well, you know this sounds cliche because you mentioned water and sewage, you mentioned electricity, but yeah. 
uh, <laughs> water and sewage are the, are the main um, litigants as well in the industrial court with action. I mean, we have um, what is possibly been looming with, with um, restructuring of jobs, yes. PSA, um, uh, basically in, involving industrial actions or, or pushback. So how can these essential services uh, move around the law, yeah, <laughs> to actually engage in industrial action? Because you, you really see, the only um, service that you don't really see um, industrial um, action taking place are the protective services. Maybe they do it in a different way, like the, the full day of policing, we can probably um, infer. Um, a couple of years ago. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the roadblocks. So that's a, a, but <laughs> it's such an extremely interesting take as well. Um, and when, when, we, when I use the term industrial action, certainly, um, I want to exclude industrial proceedings generally before the court. So I have seen, and, and to make it clear, um, these essential services are prohibited from taking industrial action such as strike, employers can't exercise lockout in those, for those essential services. And that category, I think, in law is really not up for dispute. But when we look at the Water and Sewage Authority and so on, any actions that they could bring, it'll have to be classified outside of that industrial action scope. It's going to have to be that legal proceedings are filed, for example, as opposed to um, what we were speaking about, where we have other means of action outside of the court's doors entirely. But, so, but in practice, I mean, I mean, we are seeing different reports, etc. Um, with respect to all forms of action or yes. picketing. Um, uh, so, so is it that there are loopholes in the law in terms of defining what is, as we said earlier, industrial action, or whether sit out or whether a matter of just gathering in front of the offices of the of the executive doesn't is not considered industrial action, but it's more a matter of just gathering. Right. So, <laughs> so this is this is where we look at um, at a feature where we're trying to balance what are the provisions of the law versus what really happens in practice, and how far do you really take it? And I, I, I love that example. If you gather outside the door, it, it could well be that everyone is saying, "Well, we're not really working," and if it is that we're not really working, that's loitering. <laughs> outside of that as well, if it is that you're demonstrating, well, there's a cessation of work or that we're threatening not to continue work because we'll continue gathering or picketing and it's during work hours and so, it may well fall back in industrial action under that wider definition that we spoke about earlier. And then the next question is, well, how far do we take these practical consequences? Is this necessary for the Minister of Labour to intervene because we have 20 people doing this on one day? Probably not. That may not be in the national interest. But what happens when you have a wider group and how far is this reported from the employer to the union? Those are things that are open and available to employers if it is that there is illegal industrial action taking place. If it is though that these, the employees and the union, the recognized majority union, are going by the letter of the law and are bringing proceedings in line with what the law caters for, then theoretically there's no, there's no real issue there. Indeed. But the restructuring, like you mentioned, was a good example of that because I think that's hot off the press. It's, we're familiar with what's going on in the news. I think that's, that's obviously a topic on its own that we need to discuss in, in our second um, part of this um, program. But let, let's switch because I know we are. The time goes really quickly here. Right. <laughs> um, so let's switch in terms of private entities. Are mm -hmm. private entities unionized, or are they are they are, are they subjected to the same principles as 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 a public? Um, entities. Let's yes. touch on the difference yes. if there's a any. Absolutely. Um, essential, most of the essential services, as an example, that we have really seen, 
uh, essential services that we will look at with a public law lens on, a public lens, and we see like water and sewage, as, as we have been speaking about in electricity. The majority of those things almost entirely are within the pu public sphere. But then you have civil aviation that also forms part of an essential service. Private entities could be included in that. So there would be some level of overlap when we think of essential service providers that can impact upon private entities as well. If it banks, does banks as, as a private entity form part of an essential service? The central, actually, specifically under the same section 69, the central bank does. So um, where we have prohibitions as to whether or not you're allowed to go for industrial action, the central bank and members of the central bank are, as opposed to listing the other banks privately, um, they would be subject to different rules. But the wider question with respect to private versus public um, is, is a great one. The, the, the hallmark of this with respect to industrial action is that our law makes provision for whether it's the employer, the employees, or the recognized majority union to take industrial action, but within very, very strict confines of the law, and that includes private entities as well. So that means to say that whether an employer is interested in, in a lockout exercise, um, or whether it is that the recognized majority union in the private field is going to um, encourage or assist or engage in a form of strike, it absolutely can be done, but there are so many different layers, as we spoke about earlier, as to what is proper industrial action. But, um, but then, but, but then the, the, in, in terms of private entities, uh, let's say, for instance, a, a, a law office or, or maybe an office, that a doctor's office or whomever, are their employees allowed to strike? Or is it that they must be part of a union or recognized union to strike, um, to, to, to engage in industrial action with, with respect for these small businesses? With respect to strike and lockout and so, you really will be confined to that recognized majority union aspect. So you're and saying that basically um, your secretary can decide to, to, to strike on her own? <laughs> there will be certainly consequences. Just to give an example, um, the Industrial Relations Act, which is, which is what we are um, bound by, actually makes provision for notice to the other parties, how the union is to go about exercising these options, the timelines, it's usually in reference to an intended trade dispute which must be reported to the minister. So it, it gets a little bit more complex. Um, I would say that if it is that you're in the private, the private sphere, you're not unionized, and you're taking certain action which can be deemed to be industrial action, it, it could be very dangerous, especially because of the legal consequences. So therefore we are saying that both private and public entities, um, they are bound by the same Industrial Relations Act or yes. the same procedure yes. in terms of how strike actions are, are Absolutely, are, are that's correct, yes. And, and the Industrial Court has a strong hold of that as well. And we see a lot of cases where entities may not have realized that by virtue of the action they're taking, they may be undermining their own, their own position in their job, their job security. So that's why it's always important that the entity, whether it be employer, employee, union, well, unions are professionals in their own right, but certainly the employers and employees have to take proper advice before taking any kind of action. And it goes both ways. Yeah, it does. It does. Uh, Vivek, um, unfortunately, we are, we are definitely out of time now, and I know... That's <laughs> impossible. We've been speaking for no more than 10 minutes. And, and, and this is what we always say. <laughs> time goes really quickly. So I know we have to... to we will definitely have to come back again. Um, just before you leave, anything else you want to, 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 to put forward? On, only to say that these are definitely interesting times. I always encourage um, viewers, and I know you have a very wide viewership. You always have to stay within the letter of the law. 
and I'm happy to come back for on your invitation for our round two indeed. of this discussion. Yes, indeed. It was because very much a pleasure. Retrenchment. I know that's something that is on the burning topic, and um, that's something that we definitely have to discuss. Excellent. Yeah, so thank you so much, Vivek. Thank you for See having you again. me. Thank you. Guys, you have been watching Strictly Legal. Uh, Vivek Lakan Joseph speaking on industrial action, uh, strike edition, and of course, stay tuned. And next time, we will be speaking on the restructuring process, the retrenchment, the illegalities, etc. So thank you so much for watching. I leave you with this quote. Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Good God bless. Thank you. Bye.